The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Matt Dixon, co-author of The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Matt Dixon to talk about the book he's co-authored with Ted McKenna, The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision, published by Portfolio Penguin. Matt Dixon is one of the world's leading experts on sales, customer service, and customer experience. He is a founding partner of DCM Insights, the Customer Understanding Lab. Prior to co-founding DCM Insights, he served as the Chief Product and Research Officer of Tether, an AI venture in Austin, Texas, that helps companies mine customer voice data for insights. And before that, he spent time as a senior partner and the global head of Salesforce Effectiveness Solutions at Corn Ferry Hay Group, and as group leader of the sales, service, and customer experience practices of CEB, which is now part of Gartner. Matt is a sought-after speaker and an advisor to corporate leadership teams around the world on topics ranging from sales effectiveness to customer service and customer experience, and is also a noted business writer. His first book, The Challenger Sale, Taking Control of the Customer Conversation, was a Wall Street Journal bestseller selling more than 1 million copies worldwide. He is also the co-author of the customer experience bestseller, The Effortless Experience, Conquering the New Battleground for Customer Loyalty, and the follow-on book to The Challenger Sale titled The Challenger Customer selling to the hidden influencer who can multiply your results. Matt is also a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review with more than 20 articles to date, including many that have appeared in HBR's top 10 must-reads. And interesting fact, he's a huge New York Mets fan. Matt, congratulations on the jolt effect and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, it's great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for the invitation, and let's go, Mets. But enough about this American uh, sport that drives all the Europeans crazy (laughs) when we talk about it. It is great to have you on the podcast to talk about this uh, book on customer indecision, and there's a lot to talk about. But Matt Dixon, 
I just can't decide what to talk about. <laughs> Where do we begin? Where yeah, we yeah. Begin? So I do have to ask uh, for the book launch party that, or, or parties that I'm sure you uh, are, are, are slogging through. Have you been serving Jolt Cola? We, you know, I don't even know if they make it anymore, actually. So that's a, and if they do, I, I haven't, I've, I've been told by others who've seen the book cover, um, get ready for a, uh, you know, cease and desist letter from the, whoever makes Joel Cola. But unfortunately, I don't think anybody makes it anymore. So I think we're in the clear. Well, when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, not only do you read the book, you do extensive research. And of course, it did send me uh, searching on the on the, the Google machine. And I'm not sure it may be licensed a couple places around oh, okay. the world, but it's right. not around. But I remember in the 1980s, it came out and it was yeah. Joel Cola, all the sugar, twice the caffeine. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great marketing message. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So... We met at CEB in uh, Northern Virginia in the summer of 2016 at an event that included several sales and marketing authors, uh, luminaries like yourself and Brent Adamson and mm-hmm. Pat Spenner, who I interviewed for the, the Challenger customer, uh, episode 49. And uh, Matt Hines was there, David Brock, Carlos Hidalgo, Tim Sanders, Brian Carroll, and others. And I'm not sure why I was invited. (laughs) There's a real cast of characters there. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be like all those guys, you know, speaking like in an auditorium, but it turned out to be only like 12 people in the room. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) And and I couldn't believe that I got invited and I was there. It was a bunch of these big time authors like yourself and this one knuckleheaded podcaster. And I felt like (laughs) a kid at NFL Fan Appreciation Day sitting there with all those celebrities. So, of course... I was never invited back, and I can certainly understand, <laughs> you know. In your defense, I don't know that they ever had the meeting again. So oh. <laughs> well, I happen to know they did, but I appreciate you oh, saying no. that. Right. Well, I, <laughs> I so I can feign ignorance. <laughs> That's right. So, Thank yeah. you. I think they, I know they did it one more time because I saw uh, Matt Hines was there, and I just thought, you know, that's that's great. But maybe somebody was fired for inviting me. I don't know. <laughs> it might have been me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I got to meet the head of CEB. He came in at one point and, and spoke. So. Oh, yeah. It was uh, Tom Monahan at the time. Yes. Think, right? That's yeah, right. That's sure. right. Yeah. I remember that meeting. Yeah. So, and, and actually, you weren't there the first day because I think you were off in Aspen or something. Uh, I don't think it was quite that fancy, but oh. I, I think I do remember missing the first day, but it was there because I do remember Tom speaking to the group. So. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, I got a, an autographed copy of the Challenger customer. I got a, actually a couple of them, but I got one then, and it was autographed by all four of you. And I think Nick Toman wasn't there. And Brent went to the trouble to get everybody to autograph it for me. And that really means uh, a lot. Some, oh, you, that's great. You, you probably collect autograph, you know, Mets memorabilia. Not this guy. I collect autograph sales and marketing books. Awesome, and awesome. So, uh, yeah, I'm a loser. I'm, I'm a nerd. Well, I have to get but, you an autographed copy of The Jolt Effect. Then. Oh, well, no, I, I have it. I have it right here, but I can, yeah, I'll send it to you and then you can autograph Perfect. it. Perfect. Maybe next yeah, time you're right. with Ted. So, I'm happy to deface your property, Doug, to make sure you're telling me that. One time I, I met a guy, Kawasaki, who I met, I've interviewed oh, a couple of times, so. and I said, hey, can you autograph my MacBook Air? And <laughs> He's a really funny guy, very, yeah. you know, very humble. And he goes, you know, that's going to decrease the value of, you, <laughs> of your laptop, right? So uh, anyway, he, he autographed it and said, Doug, kick butt. So <laughs> the book is, no surprise, it's exceedingly well written. And oh, thank you. the pace and the tone are, you know, very much reminiscent of the Challenger sale, and the Challenger customer in that just when I'm about to ask myself a question, you all answer it. And- <laughs> You know, there's this airtight logic to it, and it's the problem is, Dixon, you guys back it up with this unbelievable <laughs> amount of research. It's like, oh, 
Oh, okay. Well, I guess he's just not pulling this out of his butt. But you know, <laughs> when I was there at CEB, I remember Brent telling me that when you all did Challenger Customer and Challenger Sale, yeah. that you didn't sit down and write the book first. That was one of the last things you did. He, he, he talked yeah. about how there was a lot of research, there was a lot of presentations around the world to clients of CEB, mm-hmm. and then only then, and having answered the questions, did you then write the book? Did does that sound? Does that is that the it, approach? Very much so, and it was. You know, I've I've talked to many authors um, over the years, and we compare notes on the experience, and not as many as you've spoken to, Doug. But um, but certainly when I sit down with folks, and they they all talk about this, you know, um, staring at the blank page problem, you know, getting started and and starting to pull it together. That was never the experience we had on the other three books: the Challenger Sale, the Challenger Customer, and the Effortless Experience. Those books, as Brent said, were the product of several years of research uh, that we had done at CB that had been road tested with clients, where we had collected anecdotes and feedback and tons of data. You know, we had, I think, for for those books, we had several. Each one of them had several hundred thousand words of scripted presentation material. So the problem was actually how do we take hundreds of thousands of page uh, of of words of script and turn it into like a sixty seventy thousand uh, word book? That was the and turn it into something meant to be read, not presented. This book, The Jolt Effect, was very different. I actually had the experience that every other author you talk to has, which is staring at the blank page and oh. trying to figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have known. And I, I it just, it, you know, it was obviously you were one of the co authors of the other book, but it, it, it flowed very nicely. Oh, and I should also add that, uh, and we'll, we'll include this on your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, but there are a lot of really nice learning resources at jolteffect.com, which is the Correct. book yes. website. So things for sales teams or for individuals. And uh, so it doesn't it doesn't end at the book here. Make sure to to check out that after you uh, listeners uh, after you listen to this. So I want to read an excerpt from the introduction on page sure. XV, which uh, you know is is page 15 for those in Rome, and go from there. When customers balk and start to get cold feet, sellers tend to go back to the well. They assume it must be because they haven't successfully overcome the customer's status quo. Perhaps the customer doesn't fully appreciate the problem that their solution is designed to solve, or maybe they don't yet see enough daylight between their company's solution and that of uh, the competition. So salespeople break out their arsenal of tools to prove to the customer the many ways the solution will help them win. And when push comes to shove, they dial up the FUD or fear, uncertainty, and doubt to tap into the customer's fear of missing out. They show the customer what they stand to lose by not making this purchase today. They try to create a burning platform that the customer has no choice but to abandon. And yet, our research shows in very stark terms that none of this works. In fact, these time-honored sales tactics that have been passed on from leader to manager to seller for decades aren't just unproductive, They're actually counterproductive to the goal of getting the customer off the fence. Matt Dixon, why is that? (laughs) that, So note to self, I'm going to have you record the next Audible version of the book because it was was a fun experience, but I did not read that uh, section. And now I'm having um, uh, read, uh, you know, Audible regret that I should have had uh, Doug Burdett. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, but I can only do for short, uh, you know, paragraph or two. So... Um, so it's uh, this is the if you will the the sixty four thousand dollar question right um, yeah we and I'll come to... back in about forty five minutes and see how you're doing <laughs> perfect thank you 
you know, you know how long my answer is going to be. So I'm gonna, I can do my best to keep this one tight. No, no, no. But the, it's it's it. Uh, I got. We got to talk about my emotions for just a brief moment here, Matt. Sure. I, when I read this book again, it was reminiscent of reading the Challenger customer, and I remember saying to Pat Spenner, I said, "This book has blown my mind more than the last fifty that wow. have been on the show." And, and so, <laughs> so this too, I had always thought the status quo was, you know, my biggest competition. Of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, we all do, right? That's the, this is the, this is the conventional wisdom passed from sales leader to sales manager to salesperson for decades, you know, for, for as long as uh, B2B sales has been around and certainly complex sales, there's always been this belief, uh, Doug, as, as you know, and you, you've heard this probably countless times in your career as well. That when that customer starts to get cold feet, when they waffle, when they waver, when they backpedal, when they start to talk themselves out of things that you thought they were convinced of, and when the deal feels like it's starting to slip through your fingers as a salesperson, the only reason that happens is that you did not put the customer's status quo to bed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That it must be either because they believe what they do today is good enough, um, what you're proposing isn't a compelling enough reason to change, or maybe what they're doing today stinks and your solution is way better, but they've got other priorities, right? The juice is not worth the squeeze. It's not It's not worth our time and investment and resources. The pain of same. That's right. That's what we say in, in, in <laughs> the Challenger sale, right? Is yeah. that challengers are actually quite good. And Challenger at, customer, the pain, they, they, they're they right. trying to convey that the pain of same is worse than the pain of change. Correct, correct. And, and uh, park that thought for a moment because that is still a key part of the story. And so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how that beating the status quo, which to be very, very clear, the last thing I would tell any salesperson is don't worry about the status quo. It turns out that's not actually an enemy at all. Um, if you don't overcome the customer status quo, if you don't beat it, um, you're not selling anything. You're not collecting 200 bucks. You're not passing go. <laughs> you don't need to read this book. Yeah. No, you don't get to this part, right? So, no. but, but what it does tell us is that once you've done that, there's actually a second uh, chasm you need to cross that most salespeople are unaware of. Now, what's so I think what's so interesting, we found this in the data. You read that that uh, excerpt, but to put a finer point on it, just so listeners know, we found that the vast majority of salespeople at the at sign we spotted this in in the sales calls we studied um, that there are these indicators of of uh, of if you will cold feet, uh, waffling and wavering and backpedaling and hemming and hawing and straddling the fence and all this stuff. And when that happens, um, almost every salesperson in our study goes back and starts to hammer the status quo. They do it in one of three different ways. So the first way they do it is, um, you know, Doug, you you must have missed how many zeros there were on that ROI calculation I provided. Or you, <laughs> did you notice how cool our platform was? Mm-hmm. Let me take you back into the platform and show you all the cool stuff that clearly you don't fully appreciate. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you would have bought it already. Um, if that doesn't work, so that's the carrot approach. Then we've got the stick approach, which is FUD, as you talked about. And my goal there is to try to make you squirm a little bit, try to create that burning platform, try to dial up the the fact that your competitors are using our platform, you're losing ground, your customers hate you, or your employees hate you, your dog hates you, everybody mm-hmm. hates you. For you can't buy having... that medicine for your children. <laughs> exactly. You you just you are stuck with this terrible state. You, here is the cost of your inaction. Here's yeah. what's going to mean for your business. If those two techniques don't work, usually what salespeople then go to is what I'd call the disappearing carrot act, which is did I mention Doug the ten percent discount that's only good this quarter? And I, you know, I can't, and or or maybe it's in an implementation window, or in certain industries it might be just product availability. We know with the supply chain still kind of gunked up, 
that's a legitimate like fear of missing out. But all those things are about FOMO, right? It's all about dialing up the FOMO and help the customer realize the cost of their potential inaction. Now, what we found though is that doing that, the vast majority of salespeople do that, but 84% of the time it actually makes things worse, not better, which was a huge head scratcher, of course, especially after we wrote several books about dialing up the pain of same, right? So right. that was a little, a little bit concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Uh, that is the the big question. So here's what we found. I'll, I'll, I'll cut right to the answer, which is when you look at no decision losses, there are two different types. The first one is that the customer actually is committed to their status quo. So they believe what they do today is good enough. They don't believe your solution is a compelling enough alternative. There isn't enough of a reason uh, to change. is not a top priority. Those are all commitment to the status quo reasons. And dialing up the FOMO with a customer who's committed to the status quo is actually an effective technique to get them off their status quo. So I would tell you, if you're looking for ways to do that, go back and read the challenger sale or the challenger customer. Those are great playbooks for doing that. But it turns out more of no decision losses, actually nearly 60% of the time, it's actually not a function of the customer's commitment to their status quo. It's their indecision about changing the status quo. And usually when I say that, people are like, uh, that sounds exactly the same. So what's mm. the difference? And and so here's the difference. Let me peel back the onion one layer, which is to say that indecision about changing the status quo is a function of three very specific things. The first one is the customer not knowing what to pick, right? So this is the, the Barry Schwartz paradox of choice kind mm-hmm. of research. I've got too many options, too many configurations, too many integrations, too many bells and whistles, premium versions, basic versions, short contract length, long contract length, enterprise-wide, narrow deployment. It, you know, Think about all the stuff we put in front of our customers. And this is the customer thinking or saying, this all looks great. And when I go from from a concept to a proposal, it actually requires deciding what I'm not going to buy. And that can be a really hard decision for the customer. And they're worried about making the wrong choice. I pick configuration B, but I really should have picked configuration A. And that becomes an irreversible choice. And that is a bad look for me. The second source of indecision is a lack of information. This is something that Brent actually writes about in his uh, HBR article around sense making. It's this weird um, uh, irony, I think, out in the world right now, and certainly marketers are aware of this uh, deeply, that there's never been more information out there, more content out there for our customers to get educated about us, about our competitors, about our market, about our technology, about our use cases, all this stuff. There's never been more content um, available to the customer. And so that leads to the customer feeling like they haven't consumed enough of it, mm-hmm. that it's the next white paper I read. It's the next Gartner, <laughs> you know, Gartner report I read that will have all the answers that I can be a smart consumer of this thing I'm about to sign on the dotted line for. The last source of indecision is what we call outcome uncertainty. Outcome uncertainty is the customer feeling like they won't get what they're paying for. Not literally that you'll take their money and run, but rather that they may not see the ROI you're projecting, that they built their business case on a 10x ROI. And if we only get 5x, uh, you know, my, you know, somebody's head's going to roll and it's usually the person whose name is on the agreement. And so it's the customer feeling like I have no assurance of success. I have no guarantee that we'll get what we're paying for. You're asking me to take a leap of faith and there's no safety net. Those three things, if you think about those three things, what's interesting is the status quo does not make an appearance amongst those things. So you could easily have, and it turns out often do have customers who are fully committed to departing from the status quo, but instead are wrestling with Either A, I don't know what to pick, what configuration. B, I don't know if I'm enough of an expert uh, about the decision I'm being asked to make. Or C, 
I don't have any assurance of success. I have no safety net to guarantee that this is all going to work out. So it's not our inability to dial up the FOMO, uh, Doug. It's actually our inability to dial down the FOMU. FOMU is the fear of messing up, and that's what we're talking about. It's the customer's fear that they're going to make a big mistake, and those mistakes are personal in nature. You know, so these are things that customers get wrapped around the axle about. And that is why when your salespeople go back and they just dangle the 10% discount or try to create the burning platform or, or re-articulate the benefits of the solution and the ROI, at best case, it rings hollow. In worst case, it actually makes things quite worse because uh, for the customer because what you're doing is using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's actually already afraid. Yes. And it was so interesting to read or to be reminded of how people are most motivated or largely motivated by not screwing up. That's right. That's In other right. words, yeah. A, yeah. no decision is almost better than a, a decision. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why Marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Before we go on, can I just ask you to tell us briefly about the the research behind this. Yeah, sure. It was a lot, and yeah. uh, and how you all did it, and I, was it you? It was it when you were with Tethered? Uh, did they do That's a lot right. of this? So we, so uh, Ted and I happened to be. We'd spent a few years in this conversation intelligence space. Um, uh, folks uh, listening may be familiar with Gong or Chorus. Um, uh, Tether is a, another player in that space, and Ted and I worked in the product and research function at Tether. And we'd always had designs on using this technology to do um, to do sales research because this is a different way to study sales than what we'd used in the challenger sale or the challenger customer, which relied more on surveys and, and interviews. And we thought, boy, this would be a true, if you will, ethnographic, anthropological way to study sales in the way that Neil Rackham and his team did way back you know, in the 70s um, when they did the research that went into spin selling. And we could never actually do it because um, all of the really important sales calls before March of 2020 actually happened in the customer's office. And when March of 2020 rolled around, something interesting happened in sales, which is that sales became 100% virtual overnight. And so we decided to partner with several dozen companies. We harvested uh, two and a half million recorded sales calls uh, from those companies. And we used Tether. And you listen to every one of them, right? Every, every single one of them, right? Oh, uh, yeah. So No, this is where it gets really interesting. Yeah, we use, so we used Tether's machine learning platform. Basically, what we did was we took this unstructured, if you will, blob of audio. We transcribed it, uh, so we turned it into a big blob of text, a mountain of text, and then we used machine learning to bring structure to it. And we're studying now. That's a big data set that you could ask many questions of, but the specific questions we were trying to answer were: one, 
what possesses customers to do nothing, especially customers who go through the entire sales process with us? Why do they go dark? Why do they go radio silent? Why do they do nothing? And then two, what do the best salespeople do to avoid that happening to them? So just a couple of uh, vocabulary questions I wanted to to touch on uh, before we get into the jolt effect. Sure. And on, I think it's on page 13, you, you, you all write that not all types of loss are created equal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could talk about what the omission bias is yeah. and, and then like what's the, and we can get into errors of commission versus errors of omission because that's for me where it became really clear about why people are paralyzed uh, yeah. to not want to make a decision. Yeah, uh, great, great question. So I think most salespeople, well, salespeople, if they're not familiar with this, they certainly experience it every day, yes, which is yes. status quo bias. And status quo bias, of course, is, you know, um, our it's it comes down to laziness, I think, but it's it's our aversion to change. It's our preference for things to remain as they are. And we all know our customers will pass up on golden opportunities sitting right in front of them to just keep doing things the way they do them today. And that is, again, as I said before, that is a big enemy in sales, and we've got to have a playbook for for defeating it. Um, and many of our no decision losses are lost to the status quo. Now, what what salespeople I think um, have are, are knowledgeable, I should say, cognizant of, um, because their managers have told them uh, about this, is the fact that if you want to get the customer to move forward, the way you do it is dial up the FOMO, right? And that is rooted in something called prospect theory and loss aversion, which if you've never read uh, Kahneman, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. um, and aren't familiar with that research, basically holds that human beings are more motivated to avoid loss than they are to maximize gain. Mm-hmm. That is actually why we dangle the disappearing 10% discount in front of our customers. That's why we dial up the FUD, because people don't like to lose. Mm-hmm. But there's this wrinkle in the research that I think um, most salespeople are unaware of, which is exactly what you pointed out. It turns out there are two types of loss. And all losses are not created equal. There are errors of commission and errors of omission. I'll start with the omission first. An error of omission is when you lose, um, lose out uh, by doing nothing. It is a loss that results from your inaction. Um, you fail to take action and capitalize on a golden opportunity, and you experience a loss as a result. Right, that and would be like, I think you all mentioned like missing out on the, the crypto. Yeah, yeah, missing out on the crypto run-up. That's right. That's, That's an example. example. Yeah, okay. yeah, which which worked a little bit better when crypto was uh, was running up. <laughs> but uh, but but think about this. It, it actually works a little bit both ways, right? So I I've often uh, tells a story of, you know, imagine I don't know five years ago when you know the Winklevoss twins were had become super famous for making gazillions of dollars on Bitcoin, and and your best friend said, you know, hey Doug, you should invest in this stuff too. I think it's all the it's the next big thing. And you said, no way, that seems very spurious. I'm not going to do that. And your friend becomes wildly wealthy and buys an, a Caribbean island and names it after themselves and invites you to come visit once in a while. Like that is painful, right? And he doesn't <laughs> need to talk to me anymore. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so that's painful. That's an error of omission. You did not. You failed to do something right. Okay. But an error of commission is quite different. So imagine the same friend who approaches you, um, you know, let's say nine months ago and says, "Hey, I think Bitcoin's poised for another big run up. I'm going back all in on crypto. I think you should too." And you say you know what? I missed the boat last time. I'm not going to miss it this time. And you go all in. And then we all know what happened to the to crypto prices over the past uh, six to nine months. It completely tanked. And so 
you experience a loss, but that is an error of commission because that is an error that resulted directly because of an action you took. In other words, you did something wrong. It's not that you failed to do something right. It's that you actually did something wrong. Now, when you compare those two, this is the interesting thing, Doug, is, and this is, I can't take credit for this. There are many people much smarter than I am who've done decades of, of cognitive psychology research around this phenomenon, uh, behavioral economics research. And what has been proven time and time again is that if you are facing two identical losses, um, we are much more comfortable with the loss that is a result of failing to do something, uh, a loss that results from our inaction, than we are with a loss that results from an action we took. Mm -hmm. And put very simply, what that means is that we are okay with missing out, we are not okay with messing up. Um, Even if the loss is identical, nobody wants to be personally accountable or culpable for a loss. And this is true in, in, if we think about uh, consumer uh, purchases. So think about um, buy, you know, changing your homeowner's policy or going to buy a new car or buying a, a, new, a new computer or something like that and having made the wrong decision and how we feel, the, the regret and the loss of face we have with our family, our friends, et cetera. But think about a business scenario. So the egg on your face, the the bad look when you failed to you know um, uh, choose the right configuration with your vendor, when you didn't do enough homework, you didn't do enough research, and you learned something about this platform after you bought it that uh, that turns out to have been a huge mistake, or you didn't get any assurance of success from the vendor and it doesn't return the the promised benefits. You know that is a at best a loss of face inside your company and a bad look. Worst case in the current environment in particular, that could mean you lose your job. Yeah. And if I were to if I were to sum it up, this is the way I think about it: is you know I presented this a couple of weeks ago um, to a group of sales leaders and a, a VP of uh, sales at a big software company came up to me afterward and said, you know, we do this all the time. All we do is talk to our salespeople about dialing up the FOMO. Um, we've never, I'd never considered that the reason they're not moving forward is not our inability to dial up the FOMO. It's our inability to dial down the FOMO, the fear of messing up. Mm-hmm. And, and this person said to me, um, the sales leader, she said, what popped in my head? And she said, I did this on a call right before I heard your presentation. I was talking about a disappearing discount that they wouldn't have access to if they didn't buy this quarter. And it suddenly occurred to me that if it was the choice between losing out on a 10% discount or losing their job. It turns out they care a lot more about losing their job, right? And I was like, that is yeah. a really good way to put it. Yeah. So let's start to talk about the the jolt effect. Sure. Uh, but I, I want to mention something that you all have page on page 39, where you talk about uh, your analysis reveals not only that the behaviors in this approach are worth considering, but that business leaders would be hard-pressed to find any investment yeah. that can deliver the win rate uh, improvement that are with this playbook. How back that up? How you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we we actually um, you know there, there's a lot of talk. We know this, and certainly your listeners, um, many of whom are in marketing, uh, know this are, are probably under a lot of pressure from their sales team to deliver you know more leads, better leads, just drive up that that demand gen and fill the top of the funnel. And what I often tell sales leaders is the answer to more sales is actually in your pipeline right now. Mm-hmm. It's not mark. It, it, yes, I'm not saying stop on you know let up on demand gen driving leads and and filling the top of the funnel, but 40 to 60 percent of the average salesperson's pipeline, based on our research, is lost to no decision. And so there's a huge opportunity to to drive a massive inflection, create a tide that will lift all boats 
across the sales organization by getting those customers unstuck, you know, getting them to move forward. We were able to chart win rates across different levels of indecision. So you could look at low uh, low levels of indecision. So think of these as the decisive customers, um, then moderate levels of indecision and deeply, deeply indecisive customers by looking for the markers in the actual conversational data. Um, as a side point, what I tell you is um, there is no disqualifying your way out of this problem of indecision. Uh, almost 90% of all the opportunities we studied were with customers displaying either moderate or high levels of indecision. So, oh, it, without it, the 87% that you correct, kept yeah, mentioning, that's right. oh, yeah, man, it's that, everywhere. It's it burned everywhere. into my conscience. It's sort of like that 57% number that you all <laughs> introduced right. uh, the, the 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's it's everywhere. It's almost like it's like the carbon monoxide of of win rates. It's it's everywhere, but you can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You know, yeah. you can't taste it. But it's everywhere, and it drags our performance down. And it our customers get wrapped around the axle about it. So anyway, when we look at win rates across those different levels, what we find is that average performers. Um, uh, they do pretty well with the decisive customers. Our average win rate in our study was 26% across all of the opportunities we studied. Um, the average performers do pretty well with decisive customers. They convert at 39%. High performers, jolt sellers, the ones who use the playbook we're about to talk about, convert at almost 70%. So those are with the decisive customers. But when you look at the ones who are moderately indecisive, so they're the ones who have are starting to get uh, cold feet. Um, your average performers regress back to the mean, only 26% win rate there. Your high performers still convert almost 60%, specifically 57% win rate with those moderately indecisive customers. And remember, almost 90%, the 87% you quoted before, of all of our customers are either moderately or highly indecisive. That was actually the biggest difference we saw was with the moderate levels of indecision. And when you look at those deeply indecisive customers, I describe these as the folks not with cold feet, but like blocks of ice around their feet. Um, <laughs> those customers, your average performers convert only 6% of those those opportunities. So it's like leaving supermarket flyers under people's windshields and hoping that you you sell something on the back end. Your high performers though convert at 31%. So remember the average was 26%. They convert above average average um, with those deeply, deeply indecisive customers, the people who are so mired in their own indecision that it seems almost impossible to get them off the fence, and they still convert above average. So, you know, that if we can, in the playbook, as we'll talk about here, is not you know, it's it's not Jedi mind tricks. It's not um, uh, rocket science. It's stuff that I think deep down many salespeople kind of know but didn't actually realize that it would help their customers get through their own indecision and get them to to actually the finish line. So yes, so there's not only research, there's math people behind all yeah. this. And <laughs> right. uh, just a, a quick note: this is not a replacement for a sales process, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's in fact we're not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Yeah, you know, and that was probably one of the things that I think people found sticky, if you will, with the or or stinky, depending how you look at it. But with the challenger sale was. It it is a different commercial operating model. It's a different way to sell, and it requires, in many cases, kind of burning the boats and and deciding you're going to go down this insight based sales approach, this challenger sales approach. Jolt is very different. It's it's think of it as a um, like a tool. It's it's like a tool. It's almost like an overlay on whatever you already do. Yes, so, yes. You know, if you're a challenger shop, great. If you're a medic shop, fine. It doesn't really matter. But whatever you do today is a methodology 
focused entirely on beating the status quo. Mm -hmm. You need a second playbook for overcoming indecision. It really attaches to anything. It's like the fuel additive you can add. You know, <laughs> it's like a booster rocket. It it's a booster rocket. Yeah, well said. So you mentioned if companies would just apply these, you don't have to do it perfectly, but you start to, start to do it, it'll improve dramatically. Yep. But Matt Dixon, it's easier to yell at the marketing people, <laughs> you know, and say, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah the, right. the leads are weak. And yeah. uh, I should also mention that you probably know Jeb Blunt. He's of course, written, yeah. 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 And his company, his sales gravy company, he's mentioned this a couple times on interviews. He's a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. Just to, you know, dangle that out there for you. I Matt. know. Keep writing, <laughs> please keep writing books. But his firm is hired more by marketers than by CEOs or sales leaders. Interesting. In other words, these marketing people are doing a lot of things really, really well. Yeah. And then it's completely falling out of bed with the sales process. There's maybe yeah. no sales process. And in my advancing age, I'm starting to realize that you know, a lot of companies will have come to me having been in the agency business saying, oh, we, we have a marketing problem. But actually, they have more of a sales problem. Sales Maybe they just, problem. Yeah. yeah, they need yeah. a little bit of marketing help. But I think, yeah. but they'd rather yell at the marketing people than, right. and I think there's this fear of their salespeople that they're going to take their book of business. And it's just, anyway, it's a hill I'm going to die on. So, but, it, it, and let me mention one other thing. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but every episode is uh, listened to by a first time listener. And I, I realized this is the marketing book podcast. And this book is about sales. And I've had, well over 50 books on sales on the Marketing Book Podcast, and I feel strongly about this. You can hear me stepping up on my soapbox. The best marketers, the most successful marketers, are the ones that study sales. Yeah, They uh, spend time with their salespeople. They read sales books. Uh, they share it with their sales team. And if you are a marketer and you're not asking questions or trying to learn more about well, how revenue is made at your company, but also how the sales works. And even more importantly, the friction that the buyers have, you're not going to be a very successful uh, marketer. And yeah. you're, you're, I, I would go so far as to put you into the class of arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department. And I hear a lot of marketers complain yeah. about that. But if you're, not, if, you're, uh, if you're a marketer and you're not studying sales, basically... You're Week. <laughs> and that's a little strong, but well said. No, you you know we talk about this in uh, in in the challenger cell that it's not you know being a challenger organization is not just an individual skill; it's an organizational capability. And you know as we may talk about here in this conversation about the jolt effect, I, I would say that the same thing. You know, commercial excellence uh, is not about you know just sellers getting better. It's not just about um, marketers driving better leads. It's not about marketers creating better content or hosting better events. Or it's it it takes a village, and so yes. it is absolutely critical. You know that that marketers, and I think you're right. All of the world class marketers I know, of which there are many. Um, are all experts on sales as well, and deeply read in, read in on the problems salespeople encounter, um, the customer buying process, what's hard about selling today, and what the best salespeople do differently. Amen. So let's go to uh, Jolt, J-O-L-T. Sure. Let's yep. go to the J of Jolt. Let's see, page 45, you write, judge the indecision. Yep. You write that judging the indecision is the first and arguably most important step. Yeah. In the Jolt method, what is it, and 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 why is it the most important? 
Yeah, I, it kind of goes back to the the point I made before that you know um, indecision is is everywhere. We know it, it accounts for more nearly sixty percent of our no decision losses. Um, but you write that the salespeople are not very good at detecting it. No, okay, that's quite right. And, and I think I think the first part of that the problem there is that they didn't know it was out there. And so it's again, it is like I hate to stick with this um, sort of downer metaphor, but it is a bit like carbon monoxide. And you, as a salesperson, you need a carbon monoxide detector. You need an indecision detector. But there's a funny thing about indecision, which is different from. Uh, from needs, which we can diagnose with questions, uh, which you know, of which there are, there are mountains of sales books about how to do that effectively. Um, it's also different about it's different from tracking where the customer is on their buying journey, which we can use verifiers to do. We wrote about that in the Challenger customer. Are, you know, Doug, are we ready to move this to the next stage and move it to legal for review? Are we ready to bring in the finance and procurement folks? You know, those are verifiers that show us the customers tracking with us. It's kind of like the RSVP. You get back after you invite folks to your party. Um, the way we do this with indecision, because remember, indecision is about fear, and fear is very personal. And there's this irony about indecision, which is if you went out to your customers and asked them if they think they're decisive, I guarantee you 100% of them will say yes. <laughs> but we know from the data that um, 87% of them are either moderately or deeply indecisive. Um, and I, I have this funny thing that we talk about this in the book, but there's something psychologists have developed called the indecisiveness scale. And it's just a set of like 20 questions um, that you can go through pretty quickly. And every single person, we do this in our own uh, training around the uh-huh. Delta fact, we have salespeople go through it and every single person goes through it and is like, wow. I guess I'm a lot more indecisive than I thought, you know. So, so we are people are indecisive, but the the things that drive indecision are fear, fear related. And these are embarrassing things to talk about; they're personal in nature. And so, as a salesperson, you got to get them on the table. Now, we talk about um, uh, in uh, in the book, but but even more so in our training that you want to think of yourself kind of like a surface ship looking for a submarine under the water. And, and if you ever watch The Hunt for Red October, mm. which I'm a big fan, there's two ways you spot a submarine if you're a surface ship. The, the first one is um, uh, passive sonar. So we want to listen for noise that the submarine is making, and that'll tell us that there is one and where it is and how big it is and all that good stuff. Um, and so for sales, what that means is dialing in your listening, right? Being an active listener, really dialing that in and uh, and actually detecting the signs, the, the things that customers say that in some respects might sound like a good thing, uh, but are actually indicators of latent indecision. So how do we actually put on a special you know set of headphones that are tuned for detecting indecision? Mm. The other thing we do is if we don't detect any signals from the customer, if they don't give it up uh, kind of freely to us or offer it freely in a conversation, we need to ping the customer and listen for the echo. And so just like a surface ship looking for a submarine, we got to send out a ping. And the ping, what we're listening for is the reflection of that ping back toward us. I love so, it. Yeah. Yeah. So the way we might do that, uh, Doug, is not uh, not going to ask you, hey, Doug, I'm just wondering, do you consider yourself a decisive person or an indecisive person? Or are you are you scared of this? Or are you scared of that? Um, and nor is it a verifier. Um, it's different. It's me saying and making it okay to talk about the thing I think that you're actually worried about. Uh-huh. Say, you know, Doug, a lot of customers like you at this point, they're actually kind of worried about which configuration to choose. And I don't want to. I don't want to assume that that's a concern of yours. But but if it is, I just want you to know that's completely normal. Actually, and yes. we should talk about that. Uh-huh. You know, how do we make it okay, right? And that's 
that gets these things, or it produces a redirect. No, no, actually, Matt, that's not that's not what we're worried about. We're actually more worried about getting the ROI from this investment because it's a big deal for us, right? It's a huge investment and cash is king right now. But it makes it okay to talk about these things. At the highest level, what I would say is best salespeople um, they they figure out their playbook to close the sale to get the sale from I want this to I bought this from intent to action uh-huh. to bridge that that wasteland of no decision. What is the playbook I'm going to use? How do I forecast this opportunity? When's it going to close? And how, should I actually disqualify this thing out of my pipeline because maybe this customer is too far gone? Maybe they're too mired in their own decision that I, it is not going to be a good spend of my time to try to get them off the fence. The way that we do that is is listening, not just in looking for signs that they're not just able to buy, but actually that they're able to decide. Yes, so, <laughs> big difference. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's a big difference, right? Um, so that's the J, and, and it all starts there. That dictates you know the rest of the playbook that we're going to use to get our customer through the land of indecision. Yes, and that surface ship submarine... Uh, metaphor that's not in the book as i recall it, it's not actually you know it's, there are a lot of things that we've realized okay. afterward that we've taken this idea out on the road and have been uh you know presenting it to sales teams and i think just like challenger just like challenger customer you know at some point we got to kind of pull up and shoot and publish the book but we learned so much being out there with practitioners and high performing salespeople who then share those techniques with us so that's definitely something we teach in our curriculum but there is a lot of cutting room floor material and, and content that never made it to the book. So book is more of an introduction to the idea, but we've got tons more tons more stuff that we've learned along the way. So oh, that's great. And just uh, the reason I ask is because I want to underscore to you, dear listener, that was a marketing book podcast extra. Okay, mm. you don't get that in the book, folks. No, not it's, yeah. it's not it's not available anywhere. It's not that's available right. where good books are sold. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. You're absolutely right. It's the most important part, and it's not something they're ever going to tell you. But it's sort yeah. of like um, one more analogy would be like you've got a new lens or you've got night vision goggles. That's right. Suddenly, exactly. To, it's, that that it's out there, but you never had the capability to find it. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So let's go to the O of Jolt. Yep. And uh, which is offer your recommendation. And we, we talked already about uh, Barry Schwartz, Paradox of Choice. It's it, it, too many choices make it difficult. Yeah. And you've right. got a whole section to remind folks of that. But then you write all of this evidence that choice overwhelms customers might make the solution feel obvious. Pare down the choice set so the customers don't struggle with the valuation problems that can lead to indecision. But it turns out it's not that simple. Yeah, <laughs> Explain. That's right, that's right. Well, there's this real double-edged sword with with choice, and I think marketers can um, can attest to this for sure. Um, there was there's an experiment um, that Barry Schwartz writes about. Um, uh, we write about as well in our book called the Jelly Experiment. Um, this is run by was run in I think 2000 by two or was written about published in, in the year 2000 by. Uh, two psychologists, um, uh, Sheena Eingar and Mark Lepper. And what they did was they went to a local grocery store and set up a um, uh, kind of a sample table. Like you see those when you go to grocery stores, you try yeah. cheeses mm-hmm. or, or you know, whatever, what have you. And they set up one with jams and jellies and preserves and marmalades. And they had the first, the first store they went to on the first weekend, they had 24 of those. And what they found was that this was actually quite enticing to shoppers. They, they had 60% of the people who walked in the store stopped by the table to try something. So they had the French bread and the crackers and you could sample things and that was great. So it drew people in. But the flip side was that only 3% of the people who came by the table actually asked for a jar, put it in their cart and bought it. 
So the next week they went back um, to uh, another store, I think on the other side of town, uh, similar kind of clientele. They walk in, they set up a much more kind of constrained choice set table. So they had, I believe it was only six flavors mm-hmm. of um, jams, jellies, preserves, marmalades on the table with, again, the French bread, the crackers, et cetera. What they found was two things. The first thing is that that limited choice set was actually less attractive on the surface to shoppers. So only 40% of the shoppers came by to try 40, something. 40 people. 40, 40 people. 40 people right. came by to try something. But it turns out that um, uh, 30 of them actually bought something. So that was that is the double-edged sword of choice. So if you're a marketer, or candidly, even if you're a salesperson, here's the message. The message is not stop offering choice. Like nobody, choice is great. It's wonderful to pull people in. It gets people to stop by your booth at the conference. It gets people to ask for a demo. And in those early sales conversations, we we want to let a thousand flowers bloom because that's actually a good thing is to paint the art of the possible. Yes, we can integrate with this and this and this. Yes, look at all these roadmap items. Yes, look at all these different ways to configure our platform. It It's really great. But the problem is at some point you got to go from a concept that's fun to talk about to a proposal that you actually sign off on and buy. And as we talked about before, you've got to decide what not to buy. And that is actually a very vexing thing for customers. And what will often happen is in a world where everything looks good, they will worry about picking the wrong thing. Now, here's here's what most salespeople do, Doug. We found this in the calls. This was very apparent in the two and a half million calls. The average performing salesperson, when the, when the customer starts struggling a little bit with what to take out of the shopping cart, you know, what should be in the final proposal, they go back to the, well, again, they go back to their needs diagnosis skills, which they've been taught for many, many years. And they say, well, Doug, let's let's get back to basics. Let's talk about the problems you're trying to solve. Let's talk about why you reached out to us. And what my hope is that by asking the right questions, you will figure out what should be in and out of the shopping cart. But it's a little bit like going to a restaurant where you see 20 great items on the menu and asking the waiter or waitress, like, what should I off? Uh, what should I order? What's good here? What do you recommend? And they say, well, Doug, what are you in the mood to eat tonight? Which is totally unhelpful. Uh, <laughs> but what we found is great salespeople do the opposite. So, so they will go in and they will direct the customer toward what what options they should consider and what they should take out of their cart. And also they will put a firm and personal recommendation on the one they think is best for that customer. Other customers like you really get a lot of value out of this. Or if you want my opinion, these are all great options. I would pass on this stuff. I would look at this. And I personally really like this configuration for your business. So that's the waiter or waitress who comes by your table and yes. you ask them, what should I order? This all looks great. And they say, well, Doug, this is my favorite dish of all the stuff we make. And this is, if you're if you're not quite as hungry, this is a lighter dish. I love that one too. But by the way, everything we make here is wonderful. Like that is really helpful. And something fascinating happens in that moment, which is you deflect some of the blame for a bad choice onto the person who recommended it to you. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening here. So your, your best, the conversion rate impact of not just diagnosing, which of course is very important, but then actually driving the customer to a narrower choice set in in advocating for one of those choices is orders of magnitude higher. It's a significant win rate lift when we do that. Terrific. And you talk about proactive guidance there. Mm-hmm. Like it's all under that that umbrella. Yeah. That's so, right. That's right. So let's go to the uh, L. Yeah. Limit the exploration. <laughs> this just, is this seemed like a, a, a yeah. quite a hill to to climb. But talk about the high performers in your study. What did they yeah. do to keep their customers from 
endlessly spinning their wheels. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because this is the one that people I I'd say of of the four, I think this might be the hardest one yes, actually. Yes. And and it's probably like Challenger actually, it's probably the one that if you just read that limit the exploration would lead to a lot of bad behavior, which is like yes. you know, like no, when the customer asks for that fifth demo saying no or when they ask you to send them that that white paper your company published and you refuse to do it, like that is not what we're recommending here. <laughs> and I've actually bad. had another author on the the show, what is the author of a sales book? In her book, she was talking about how people are fed up with a 25 year old kid who has heard about the Challenger customer <laughs> or the Challenger sale. They never right. read it and they, right. they think they're act, supposed to act a certain way. So, yes, it's it's very misunderstood. And this is too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and here's the other thing is that we also know Jedi mind tricks, as, as cool as they seem in the movies, don't actually work in sales. So, you can't actually tell the customer, no, Doug, you don't need to read that Gardner magic. That's not the magic quadrant you're looking for. You know, that's not, don't worry about that. You just trust me. The problem is, um, uh, there's this overused term in sales, of course, which is, you know, to get the customer to stop trying to be an expert themselves, you need to be a trusted advisor. But I think most sales leaders have failed to articulate exactly what it takes to do that and what that means in practice. We found it in the sales call. So there's two pieces of this. First, you got to build the trust and you've got to understand that your customer comes into the sales conversation um, with, if you will, I would say suffering from, but uh, being influenced by what's called the agency dilemma or the principal agent um, uh, problem, which is their belief that you as a salesperson are there to oversell them, to, to hide the dirty laundry, to not share the bad news, to not introduce them to all the customers who actually hate you and your product. You know, they don't share the bad stuff. They're there to max out the sale and sell you more than you need, right? This is their perception. And, and well, I, way, think, I think the, the seller is guilty until proven innocent. A hundred percent. Well said. And, and it's like, you know, as salespeople, I think, unfortunately, it's not, it's nothing you did, but your customers come in with the baggage of all the times they've been burned in the past. Yes. And, and the, you are, you are cleaning up the messes left by many of your predecessors. Always be closing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you want to work here? Close. <laughs> Where are the good leads? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, well said, Mr. Uh, Mr. Baldwin, I believe that was. Right? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So, okay, so so how do we do that? Well, this is this is interesting. We it feels very fluffy and oh, build trust with your customer. We actually found it in the call data. So here's how it happens: in key moments where the salesperson actually tells the customer what they shouldn't buy, even stuff that your own co- company would offer them. Like, uh-huh. you know what, Doug, you don't need the premium version of our solution. And actually, I, I would recommend you don't roll it out enterprise-wide. I'd love to sell you a million-dollar deal. We'd love that. I'd make my year. Trust me, I'd go to Cancun. I'd be a hero. It'd be amazing. But I actually think the smart thing to do is go with the basic version of the solution, roll it out in a narrow sense, and we can always expand from there as the demand goes up in your enterprise. Or telling them about capabilities, whether that's you know new items in the new new capabilities in the platform or the product or integrations that are not quite ready for prime time. You know, Doug, this is a new one for us um, and we've got some early adopters and it's been a little bit rough and we're working out the kinks. So I don't want you to build your business case or I don't want to overpromise and then underdeliver. Here, how about this one? We found high-performing salespeople in these sales calls 
proactively telling the customer that their company's solution might not be the best one for their needs. And in fact, they should they might want to think about calling a competitor. Yes. You know, and you know what this reminded me of was uh, Miracle on 34th Street where Oh yeah, go to Bloom- <laughs> yeah, go to Bloomingdale's or yeah. go to Macy's or yeah. Go to go to go to wherever the other I think they were Gimbals yeah. or he said go Gimbals, to Gimbals. That's right. yeah. yeah, go to Gimbals. Santa Claus was saying we don't have that toy, but you can go to there uh, the other place and it, yes, the, the the there's great the, the, there was something I just wanted to quote though from uh, page 93 sure. that has big big marketing implications and I already mentioned this to some of my mm-hmm. my friends. You talk about uh, again, this is back to limit the exploration. High performers were more proactive than their peers in suggesting additional reading and sources of information yeah. the customer yeah. should consult to help them come down the learning curve. And importantly, these were often not their company's own marketing yeah. materials or right. thought leadership content. Now, you can send some, but 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 then you, you go on to write, on one call, for example, a top rep laid out a reading list for his customer. Mm-hmm. Quote, I find that many of my customers go online and try to self-educate around this technology, but there's so much content out there that it can be really overwhelming and people just end up confused at a higher level. I'm going to send you a few links to some pieces that I always recommend to people looking at this technology for the first time. There are a couple of articles and a podcast, which I really like, in which an industry analyst explains, in layperson's terms, how the technology works, what the different use cases are, and what to watch out for when you're evaluating vendors. I'd encourage you to just spend a little time with this content and pass it along to others on the team. I think it will help get you to the 201 level quickly so that you can get down the learning curve and start asking the more important questions you need answered. Brilliant. Yeah, that's and you know marketing plays an absolutely critical role in structuring that learning journey, right? So yes, let's let's not leave it up to our salespeople. Let's help them out because we know, and that's another way to overcome this agency dilemma, right? We're putting content in front of our customer that you know think about this. Maybe some of it's from our competitors, right? But it's but yeah. we recommend this. It's unbiased. We our goal here is not to oversell you. Our goal is to help you get to a great decision, and that decision might actually be not buying from us, or it might be um, don't doing nothing, right? But we're, we are here to help you get to that decision. But that's that's the trust piece. The other part of it is being a, a trust, the other part of being a trusted advisor is actually being able to advise. And this was also fascinating. We found that high-performing salespeople did a few critical things to establish themselves as an expert advisor in the eyes of the customer. So um, one thing was they were much more likely, even within the same company, high performers much more likely to do their own demos than average performers, much less likely to show up with the clown car of experts, you know, the solutions engineers, the product people, the, yes. you know, the customer success folks, all the other uh, you know, executive sponsors, all the people we asked to join us. And it didn't mean that they didn't ever bring other, you know, kind of subject matter experts to answer those really detailed questions for customers. But when they did it, it was really tightly choreographed. So they would give that person the mic, but really only for five or 10 minutes. And usually what we found out through following research, they would orchestrate this in advance. And it would be me. What I wouldn't do is this. I wouldn't get on the phone and say, Hey, I brought I brought along Doug Burdett, but Doug is our our chief product officer. Doug, take it away. Why? Because Doug hates when I do that because he's not the salesperson I am. Right. And the the other thing is the high performer knows in that moment the customer perceives me as nothing more than a glorified admin. Yes. I'm like a, I'm basically an MC. Uh, my only value is getting Doug on the phone, and it's it's a little bit like this. It's um the analogy I've used is 
imagine you're um, you're planning a trip to Italy and you've never been before. Um, you don't want to put your put your trip and your um, the success of your your trip in the hands of somebody who's also never been there before. A travel advisor who's never been there before, never organized a trip to Italy for anybody else. In that world, you're going to do just as much research as you would if you were on your own because the person guiding you isn't actually in a position to guide at all. Mm -hmm. So we need to show the customer, you don't need to be an expert. I'm an expert. Not not only that, I'm a trustworthy expert. And then the the last thing I'll uh, share with you here, Doug, in this point, I think this is why this was a really tricky one. Yeah. But it it seems like this could be, in addition to the first one being important, if you can get this one. Yes. There's probably more nuance to it, but it was, because I started reading the chapter thinking, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> limit <Yeah>. limit <laughs> the exploration. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Good luck. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but you, but you saw the win rate impact. Like, it, here's the real danger for sales leaders. Uh, just as an aside, when when the customer asks for more, the win rate impact is very very clear. They will get wrapped around the axle and engage in analysis paralysis, quite literally. And the win rate is paltry when they when we just indulge every single request they have yes. for more content more information so we've got to put a stop to it for their own good but the real danger is this and this is what makes it so like nefarious is that when the customer asks for more it feels to the average salesperson like progress you know when you ask for that third demo when you ask for that fifth reference call when you want that <laughs> other white paper you it feels like you're making progress but actually what you're doing is moving away from the finish line not toward it yes and so one of the other techniques I, that we talk about in the book is um, anticipating needs and objections. And, and the way this came across in the sales calls was um, it, one was that high performers listen for signs of implicit non-acceptance. So that's the difference between me asking you, Doug, like, hey, Doug, you asked that question. Have I addressed your question? And you saying you nailed it. And you saying, yeah, I guess so. Now, for an average performer, those are two, yes. one in the same. And if uh-huh. I hear, yeah, I guess so, Doug, I'm going to put you down for yes, and we're going to keep going, right? Yeah. But if, if I'm a high performer, I hit pause, and I say, Doug, I don't I don't want to misread the situation here or, or put words in your mouth, but it kind of seemed like maybe I didn't nail the answer to that question, or maybe there's something else you're worried about. So let's let's talk about it. Let's, let's hit pause. I don't want to keep this conversation, because if I know if I don't address this, it's going to fester, and you're going to feel like you didn't get the answers you were looking for. The other thing you, you found was high performers will proactively suggest objections the customer hasn't even brought up. So, you know, Doug... Other folks like you, when they ask that question, here's usually another question they're wondering about. It's so often we heard in the calls, the customer saying, breathing a sigh of relief and saying, yeah, I actually was kind of worried about that, but I didn't know how to bring it up. So I'm glad you did. Tell me about that. And so what that tells the customer is that they are in the hands of somebody who's been there, done that, and sold to people just like them. I don't need to be an expert because the person who's selling to me is an expert, and I trust them to get me to a good decision. When you do all that, the cherry on top is being able to basically tell the customer when they ask for that fifth demo, the fourth reference call, the they want to wait another month for your next webinar or white paper to come out to say, you know, I think you know we've we've gotten to know each other. I think hopefully hopefully you understand. I want to be a good steward of your time. We can certainly do another one. <laughs> I don't want to waste your time or ours, and I actually don't think that's going to provide any more information than you already have. And so let's have a conversation about what's actually the the concern here instead yes. of using your ping and echoes, right? You can only do that. You can't do that first. You can only do that when you build the trust and you establish yourself as an expert. Yes. And there were some great examples in there of how to, again, back to the sonar, what to, what to listen for and realize that there's a difference between what they want and what they need. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let's go to the T of jolt. Wrapping sure. up here. Take yeah. risk 
off the table. I want to read from page 111 where you write, even if we are able to convince the customer that they don't need to do more research, and even if we can help them pick a good option from a host of what they believe are equally good options, every customer will still think twice before signing on the dotted line. Only one thing counts in this life. (laughs) Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. To contemplate whether they'll actually get what they're paying for. Every buyer has experienced being burned by a vendor or a too-good-to-be-true product description that overpromised and underdelivered. The bad memories of those failed purchases come flooding back. And the last thing a customer wants to do is make a decision that will lead to some unforeseen loss. Better to do nothing the customer reasons, than to intentionally make a decision that ends up costing them. So two-part question. Mm -hmm. What do the average sellers do and what do the superior sellers do as it relates to this point based on your research in, in terms of taking risk off the table? Yeah, I think I think average performers, what we talk about in the book is this is sort of the moment of the game of chicken, right? Where the customer starts worrying about, you know, not not getting the returns you projected, not getting the benefits you, um, uh, you've been t- selling them on all through the sales process. And they start dialing up the FUD in those moments. Well, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't afford not to act, and these problems won't solve themselves and this kind of thing. And as we talked about before, that actually ends up making things worse. What, what high performers do is they – as two things, actually. Well, the, the thing they do in that moment, uh, you know, and usually this stuff comes up late, late stage, right? It's the – I like to say the, the distance between the tip of the customer's pen and the contract is filled with outcome uncertainty. Am I going to get what I'm paying for? Yeah. And that's what causes them to pause and, and, and to, you know, uh, to put their pen away and then think twice about this. And so what high performers will do is they'll come up with creative – often creative options to de-risk the purchase. So it can be anything in simple transactional sales. We have the ability to – offer an opt-out clause or a you know a, a convenience cancellation clause or what have you, prorated refund. In more complex sales, that's less common, but there are other things we can do. So here's an example. We found with one of the companies who participated, um, they're in the software space, their high performers were orders of magnitude more likely to sell professional services hours or, or um, you know engagements in addition to the software. But the way they did it was as a de-risking measure. So they would we heard them telling customers on these calls, um, you know, I, Doug, I know you want to roll this out on your own. And by the way, you, that's one of the great things about our platform. You can totally do that. And our customer success team has your back. And we want you to learn how to fish, not just, you know, us give you the fish. So that's great. However, I know this is a big commitment for your organization. And what I'd like to do is carve out a slug of professional services hours. In the off chance this goes sideways, we get it back on rail on the rails quickly, and and we don't lose any ground, right? And you don't feel undue pressure on yourself. Um, so let's let's account for that. And by the way, if you don't use those hours, we can roll it into the renewal and what have you. So they positioned it as a safety net, almost like an insurance policy. So they actually the they didn't give it away for free. The customer paid for it, but they use it as a as a safety net. And you know, one of the other ones I mentioned before was um, actually suggesting to the customer they start smaller than maybe the customer wants to start. The customer wants to roll it out enterprise-wide with all the bells and whistles, proactively suggesting to them that, you know what, it, with sale, these best salespeople are thinking is that deal is going to take forever for me to close, and there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on it, and there's a ton of consensus I need to build. But if we start smaller, we can move more expeditiously. And not only that, 
it puts less pressure on my customer. They feel less outcome uncertainty because we're starting small. We get some, some, you know, I would say runs on the board, but for our international listeners, victories on the board, right? Um, <laughs> we chalk us to success and then we, we, um, we move forward from there. So these are great ways to, to de-risk the purchase. Now, this problem of outcome uncertainty, what's interesting is while it comes up late, it's usually a sign that you failed to do something else earlier, which is properly set expectations. Mm-hmm. Average performers were way more likely in the same company to talk up gaudy ROI numbers, you know, um, examples from the case study on the website, which has only ever happened with this one customer who got a thousand X ROI in our solution or saved millions of dollars or what have you. And they use that as the basis that every customer should build their business case on. What high performers would do is say, you know, uh, that's a great case. We They're one of our best customers, but a lot of things went right and they really resourced heavily this rollout. What I'd rather do is you build your business case on a 10X ROI because mm-hmm. that we see all the time. And here's the thing, we're going to do better than that. And then you're going to look like a hero. So again, you got to plant the seeds early and that enables us to avoid some of that outcome uncertainty uh, later in the game. Oh, yes. And we've only scratched the surface, but since the book is called The Jolt, effect. I thought it was important that we go through the, sure, the J and the O and the L and the T, because there's several other sections in the book about um, how to determine if indecision is costing your company. And I, I gather that a lot of companies, they're all looking at is, do we win or lose? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, yeah. there, there's a third one you need to put on there. And uh, applying uh, Jolt in different sales environments, how to uh, hire or train for this, and a, a big section on the, the 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 technology and some of the up and, and downsides of the technology. I mean, uh, I don't think every company should expect to have the exact same success that y- you all did by analyzing those two and a half million uh, calls. There's a there's a little more to it. They kind of have yeah. to have a company yeah. that knows what they're doing, and you you're very transparent, saying you know uh, some companies that do this that it ends up not working for them. So. Yeah. You know, right. but there are some there are some other non tech ways that you could do it that just don't uh, scale quite as well. So, Matt Dixon, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would say hit the pause button. So before you before you uh, treat every indecisive customer like a nail and break out your you know dial up the FOMO <laughs> hammer, just like keep it in the tool belt for a moment and take a little bit of a pause and try to dig a little bit deeper and understand what actually is causing my customer to get cold feet or to to waver in this moment and more often than not you're going to find it's it's not your again it's not your inability to dial up the fomo that that is causing them to not get off the fence. It's your inability to dial down the FOMU, the fear of messing up. That that's really what's what's giving this customer pause. That's really what they're worried about. And you run a high risk by just you know again using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's already afraid. It, um, you have run a high risk of this winding up in no decision uh, land and that customer ghosting you and going radio silent because of the way you mishandled that moment. Mm, great answer. And after reading the book, I was reminded of this sage advice for any company is to think, how hard or easy are we making it to buy from us? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and your book beautifully shows how you're actually making it worse. <laughs> you're making That's it right. worse. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're, you can actually help people make a decision that they'll feel good about and they'll, they'll be uh, successful with. So what is one thing a listener could do today to put into action one of the ideas from your book? Yeah. So that technique we talked about earlier, that idea of pinging for uh, latent indecision. Now, you know, once we know that it's out there, uh, it's everywhere. Yes. Um, and it's happening. Can we, it's, it's an easy thing to do. If you reflect on other customers who get 
you experienced, you know, pause and hesitation and reluctance to move forward and just articulating, you know, other customers like you kind of get a little antsy about this and I just want to put it on the table. I'm not suggesting that that's a concern for you, but if it is, I'd love to talk about it. And and that often just opens up this what's called Pandora's box of indecision, but it's actually not a bad thing, right? Because we need, if in order to deal with it, we need to get it on the table so we can talk about it. Yes. So do you all encounter what I, I just thought of uh, indecision deniers? Absolutely. I, so I think, uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of current events wrapped into that statement. Yeah. I think we do. You know, it, I feel like I look out there um, on, you know, some of the comments on LinkedIn and certainly there's plenty of people at now the book's been out who just, Say nope. It's all about value. It's all about it's all about the FOMO. It's all about you know uh, the status quo. That is our only enemy. And I think in some respects, our indecision deniers. Um, I think it's a a good a good way to put it. <laughs> and and is your response on LinkedIn? Have you read the book? No, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll post those snarky <laughs> comments for you. Thank you, Doug. I you have a reputation that. to uphold. That's not a problem for me. <laughs> so uh, looking back. Matt, what books have most inspired your work and career? Yeah, uh, great question. So I, um, uh, so many. Uh, the one I will point to, I mentioned a number of pieces, Kahneman, uh, Schwartz, and, and others, and we reference a lot of psychology and, and behavioral economics work in our in the book, The Jolt Effect. But um, I think one of the one of my favorites that kind of taught me to do what I do is uh, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. I, I love that book. It's 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 a fantastic book for marketers, for salespeople, um, for you know researchers and storytellers and writers like myself. Um, if you look at things that that are in this book, like the FOMO versus the FOMU, the fear of messing up versus the fear of me- missing out, those concepts, I, I think we really went back to the Heath Brothers playbook to try to figure out how do we make this idea, or even Jolt itself, like how do we make this idea stick and mm-hmm. stay with people? So. They hear me on, you know, Doug's show, or they hear me at a keynote, or they they read the book, but it it stays with them. And there's a specific way to do that to really imprint these these insights and these lessons on people's minds, so that they can recall them uh, much long after they left the keynote, long after they heard, um, uh, you know, the marketing book podcast, etc. Yes, and if uh, Chip Heath is in fact listening, uh, sir, you are invited to come on the show <laughs> to talk about making numbers count, the art and science of communicating oh, yeah. numbers. That's great. So. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading now that you have a, maybe a few extra minutes uh, every week to be able to read books? Well, I, I, there's there's one I, I've um, I've got on my bookshelf that I've I'm waiting to crack open, eagerly waiting to crack open, which is uh, the new Dan Pink book, uh, The Power of Regret. And you know, Dan it kind of deals with this from a different angle, which is to talk about how do we use the fact that all of us, you know, the thing we actually regret in life, the things we regret in life are typically things we didn't do, not things we did do. Like the person you didn't ask on a date in college, the the concert you didn't go to, the 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 job you didn't take, the trip you didn't take, what have you. And those are the things we regret. So how do we use that knowledge to actually um, get us to make better decisions now? Now, of course, for salespeople, it's, it's all well and good that when you reflect back on these things, you know, 10 years down the road, those are your biggest regrets. But if you got to hit your number this quarter, you got to, it's not the the fear of inaction, it's the fear of action as we talk about. So they, I think the two, the jolt effect and the power of regret are a nice kind of one-two punch uh, for people to uh, to consider. Oh, great. Yeah. The power of regret, how looking backward yeah. moves us forward. Yeah. And uh, w- when I was reading about the errors of omission, I started thinking about 
you know, how people regret things they didn't do. That's right. Uh, That's rather right. than things they, they did do. So, and that, and that is quite right. And we talk about that in the book. Um, it's, it's just, uh, we in sales can't afford to wait for them to realize that. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right, right, yeah. right, right. Great. Well, that's, that's terrific. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including your, uh, your website, the, the jolt effect, uh, your LinkedIn profile, Twitter account, all, all that sort of thing. And all the books that have been mentioned. And now a word to you, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor, please reach out in some way to Matt Dixon and congratulate him on this book and thank, thank you, him for being a guest on the marketing book podcast and putting up with the host's foolishness, uh, <laughs> send him a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or, or, or whatever guests on the show have told me that they really do enjoy hearing from marketing book podcast listeners and not just because marketing book podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision. The authors are Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna. Matt, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. It was a pleasure and I look forward to our next conversation. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Doug, if you hit pause for one second, I, my, my dog is home from the vet, so I'm going to bring him into my office. Oh, yeah. This is a pet-friendly awesome. show. <laughs> yeah. As the fact that mine is asleep behind me right now. <laughs> Hang on. Hey, just give me 30 seconds. I'll go grab him. All right. I am back. And I've is got he okay? My... Oh, he's great. Yeah. He had, to, he had to have a couple teeth pulled, actually. So, oh. um, but he doesn't seem very out of it. He seems normally after, you know going under you know how you know how they are they yeah mope around a bit and <laughs> they just seem out of it but he seems quite himself <laughs> so. okay anyway